Welcome to Brand New Doctor. My name is Rola Carajo, doctor turned healthcare graphic designer and brand strategist. This is the show where we share big ideas and look for inspiration in all kinds of places to help you grow a fulfilling career in healthcare. Following a path to success is one thing, but carving your own is another. So this is for you if you want to go beyond book smart. I'm joined today by Dr. Azim Alam. He is a specialist registrar in clinical radiology and co-founder of BiteWorld, one of the UK's fastest growing healthcare education startups. One of their most notable offerings is Byte Labs, a health tech fellowship, which gives the opportunity to gain the experience, skills and networks needed to start a health tech career. Azim has many achievements and awards, including the British Empire Medal in the 2021 New Year's Honours from the Queen and has been recognised by several institutions for his contributions to education, including the Department of Health and Social Care and the British Medical Association. Aside from being published in many research journals, including Nature and The Lancet, he also has a talent for songwriting, having worked with a number of record labels and winning an International Songwriting Award in 2022. So welcome to the show, Azim. It is wonderful to speak with you. Thank you for that very, uh, very kind introduction. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Oh, there's so much more I could have said. <laughs> that was the succinct version. To anyone listening, check him out. There's a lot more that you can see about Azim. But yeah, it's, it's great to have you because you are a clinician, you're an entrepreneur, and you're a creative, all rolled into one. And you're carving a path for yourself in healthcare, and you're also giving other people the tools to do this. So I'm really excited to talk all about this. So, I mean, one of the things that really came to mind when I was reading about you and learning about all the things you've done, I was just getting this impression that you are someone who does things on their own terms. So typically with medical careers, I see patterns and a linear progression in terms of when people go into training or they go for further education or perhaps when they decide they're going to take out some time to explore their other interests. And it's great to see you doing everything on your own schedule. So can you share your journey and what has helped you go against the tide and follow your interests before circling back to do a training program when you felt you were ready? I think um, a lot of things in retrospect look like they have a very clear um, and well thought out plan. Um, but when you're going through it, it seems like anything but. Um, so I'll describe broadly what, what's been happening to me over the last few years and then talk about some of the challenges and how when you look back on it, it all makes sense. But going through it is, is actually very difficult. Um, so yeah, I did my, my med school training at King's and Imperial in London. Um, yeah, that, that was great fun. I then um, did the academic foundation training program in London um, at Guy's and St. Thomas's. So uh, all with the, the master plan of becoming an academic surgeon in London one day. So I did my F1, F2, uh, kind of did all the, the whole getting presentations and publications journey uh, with that aim of becoming a surgeon in London. But after kind of nearing the end of F2, realized I needed a little bit of time out to reassess my life and, and what I wanted from from life as well, more broadly speaking. And decided to take an F3. This was when I moved to, to LA to pursue my songwriting career, which is kind of what I was doing before medical school. So when I was 15, 16, um, and yeah, regained a lot of those contacts, moved to LA. The plan was to stay out there for, for one year. 
and just write music for artists out there and the publishing label, etc. But then a little thing called COVID happened, which brought me home early. So um, I had to come back after around eight months rather than the year. And that is when Byte World, or our, our first product, or specifically Byte Medicine, uh, was founded. So I uh, founded that with a few friends of mine, mainly uh, seeing the, the huge demand in remote learning within healthcare that began right at the peak of the pandemic, or at the start of the pandemic. So we started running um, online workshops and webinars whilst trying to build a platform to host a lot of this content. So we uh, over kind of the, the one really significant year of COVID, we were teaching around you know, 500 to 1,000 students a day live um, around the world just because there was such demand. And this was everything from you know, aspects of medicine, surgery, pharmacology, to psychiatry, et cetera. And the experience of kind of delivering teaching um, to people all around the world was kind of my first taste of being able to build something that can impact, you know, waves of people. How, how can you trade your time for, for impact, essentially? So, you know, we have people tuning in from the UK, but also from the US, from Tanzania, from Madagascar, from Singapore, and everyone was typing in the chat about where they were from and seeing that, well, you know, I, I absolutely loved that experience. And then you know, bringing more friends on board, reaching out to consultants across the UK to produce content. Uh, and then switching on to monetization once we had some traction later on in the year, that was kind of my first my first foray into the the world of entrepreneurship. And then that was kind of my F three yes three and a half year. Um, I then was planning to go back into surgical training and decided not to about two weeks before I was about to start. And there was a whole story behind that as well. Then continued scaling the company, moved to a health tech company called Sarah. Uh, was there for around a year and a bit, worked a kind of clinical teaching fellow job amongst all of that stuff, just to gain more experience in the education space. And then founded Byte Labs last year, during my S5 year, as I transitioned in back into clinical training. And now I'm a ST2 radiology registrar, uh, and mainly still working on on the business, on the Byte World stand-up side of things, and then still dabbling in some work with Sarah at the same time and, and a couple of other hats. But broadly speaking, that was, that's been my journey since 2017. Yeah, well, there's a lot has happened. I think not just for you, but the, the world has changed, hasn't it, in that, in that period of time. And it's really interesting to hear how you were able to kind of adapt to, to those changes and see an opportunity in that. And, and from that, that was where Byte Labs or Byte World was created really, starting with Byte Medicine. So, I mean, you have a very, uh, as I said before, you have lots of achievements and you may be one of the most accomplished people that I know. And, I, you know, at least, you know, on paper, that's what, what everyone is seeing. And I'm sure there's lots of other things that are going on in your life as well that not everyone gets to see at the same time. So I'd really love to know what is your proudest achievement, whether it has been recognized or not when it comes to the work that you're doing or in your personal life, wherever it may be. Well, thank you. That's a, that's a huge compliment from you. So I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, I think obviously the, the simple answer to that on a practical level is probably just being including in late Her Majesty's New Year's Honours, that was a, a massive uh, accomplishment for, for myself and for the entire team in terms of the hours and work that we put in. But I think probably the, the truer answer is, is more of a 
psychological component and, and the, the things that go on behind the scenes. You know, I, I was alluding to the fact that in retrospect, when you hear stories like mine, things kind of tie nicely together and you put a bow on it and everything makes sense. But, you know, when I left, when I took, you know, my F2 year, um, that was my, well, sorry, just after F2, so F3, that was my first taste of kind of the world beyond medicine since I was 18 years old, really, because you spend so many years within medical school, you do F1, F2, and as you leave it to right at the start, you, you're expected to follow this very linear career trajectory, um, and you finish training, and, you know, you keep working for decades on end, and then you retire, right? And then when you start taking a little bit of time out to question and rethink why you do what you do, and who you are as a person and what do you want from life? What do you really value? A lot of who you are can come crumbling down. And that's really what happened to me in my F3, 4, 5 year is, um, you know, the preconceived notions of, you know, why did I want to become an academic surgeon? Well, was it because I actually wanted to be a surgeon or because I wanted some of the kudos and recognition that may come alongside that. And, and that really is, you know, from my personal point of view, my greatest accomplishment was actually going through that process for, which lasted years actually, and it was really uncomfortable. And, um, you know, I, I moved back home to my parents for a little while just cause you know, I, I couldn't handle this whole feeling that everything that I was thought I was necessarily wasn't the case anymore. And, um, and a lot of people don't really talk about that side of things because as you say on the surface and on the LinkedIn profile, everything seems like it makes a lot of sense, but often it, it really doesn't. And, and the reason I, you know, I had an academic clinical fellow, like the surgical academic training program at Imperial, which as I said, was, I was about to start, I was two weeks away from starting. And that's when once again, everything came crumbling down even further. I was like, is this really what I want to be doing? And, and, uh, and I left and, and, you know, there's a whole host of, uh, issues which came alongside and come alongside leaving a training program. A lot of people you have to convince, but you know, I knew that that was what I needed to do because I wasn't being true to who I was. So. Now, the short answer to your question is probably just being able to challenge myself and feel incredibly uncomfortable for, for quite a long time so that now I've come to the end of that process and realized actually what I want is I, I want to still be a clinician, but in a specialty, which maybe is more conducive to a, a work-life balance that allows me to do things that I really love doing, which is building impactful things that have a positive impact at scale. Like that, that is what I really love to do in scaling businesses and entrepreneurship alongside a little bit of the clinical side. Yeah, but you know, you and I have a lot more in common than I first thought, actually. I mean, I, I assume that we would have a lot to talk about just in terms of kind of some of the interests that we have, but just that whole, the words that you're using, uncomfortable, <laughs> having to convince people, having what looks like a good plan or a good option, and then really having to go through a difficult process of actually letting go of the bird in hand, if you like, and um, exploring the unknown. That's These are all things that I can relate to on a really personal level. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this as well will will really be able to empathize with that feeling. I wonder what was it that helped you to kind of stay the course through that period of feeling uncomfortable? Because I think for a lot of people, the discomfort is enough to convince them that they're in, they're doing the wrong thing, actually, um, rather than understanding that it just comes with the territory. So what, what was it that was helpful to you? Yeah, I think family and friends are like absolutely the number one thing on that list for me. Um, 
because as you allude to, you know, it, uh, a lot of people go through these challenges, but unless you are surrounded by people that can give you wise counsel and support you in that, it's an incredibly lonely experience. You know, both of my parents are, are doctors by background, a little bit more old school in their mentality. Uh, particularly my dad, he was a surgeon and I think his plan was, you know, his firstborn son would become a surgeon like him. And I think that was his plan from, from when I was very young and being able to, to share those experiences with your, with your family and your close friends you know, and being able to try and really articulate why you're feeling what you're feeling. Um, and then, then the, the bigger challenge is trying to navigate the hundreds of different viewpoints that often come your way. I'll, I'll give you an example of obviously when I got into surgical training at a, at a good institution in London, the first thing that people ask is, all they say is like, congratulations, that's going to be amazing, incredible. And then you can, that validates this feeling of, oh, okay, then that must be for me because everyone's saying how great. And then on the other side of things, you've got, okay, well, are you sure that's really what you want to be doing? Because evidence suggests for the last few years, you've been doing a lot of other things that you've been loving. Actually, you're right. This is really what I wanted to do. And then when you leave, you've got people who say, this is the craziest thing ever. Who would ever give up a surgical academic number in London? Who would ever leave surgical training? And then particularly from consultants, et cetera. And then you have to navigate that. And then, as you say, the discomfort makes you feel like what you're doing is wrong. But in my experience, the discomfort made me realize what I really wanted. Um, and that was basically you have to navigate those different viewpoints and make decisions for yourself, which I realized for a lot of my not life, but a lot of my professional career in med school and otherwise, I've been making not for other people, but taking other people's views into account far too strongly without thinking about what I really wanted. Yeah. I want to talk to you a little bit more about health tech because that is, as you say, that's what you're doing now. That's the world that you have surrounded yourself with really. So there are a lot of people who want to be like you and have a clinical and a health tech career at the same time. I'd really love to know what you have to say about that. Were there any kind of unforeseen challenges or benefits that you found with this? And what do you think people who are actually thinking about doing something like you should know? that perhaps maybe you wish you would have known yourself. The thing about health tech generally now, and it's a very sexy term, and I think it's uh, clinicians who are still in the NHS full-time who aren't necessarily enjoying um, their jobs. They see it as quite a binary thing. They're like, the NHS does not treat you well. It does not pay you well. Life in the NHS is not good. Whereas health tech is roses and rainbows and you, you're flying unicorns and it is this wonderful, wonderful place where everything will be fantastic. Unfortunately, that, that isn't the case. Um, there are pros and cons behind both careers, as everyone knows, which I won't necessarily go into the details of, but um, in terms of the, the challenges of trying to pivot one's career, as you have done, as I've kind of done, but not, not fully, um, is that you often don't have enough evidence to inform the decisions that you're making. And the only way you can gain that evidence is by, by learning. And that can be from you know, podcasts like this. That can be from reading articles online. That can be from stalking people on LinkedIn. But really, the best way to do that, in my experience, is just forging very authentic relationships with people who have done similar journeys or journeys that you uh, admire. So that's really when I took my first step into the health tech space because I started reaching out to people who um, had very strange careers or very interesting careers, either, you know, instead of their clinical careers or, or um, alongside their clinical careers. And I just, you know, 
question of just, I mentioned this on a few podcasts, it's uh, the art of cold outreach and being able to build authentic connections with people that you've never met before and haven't even necessarily had an introduction to. So my foray into the health tech space was purely through a friend of a friend who I'd met through church, who was a completely distant connection. And, um, and it wasn't even through like the traditional means of things. And so I met him, a chap called Ben, who's become a good friend of mine, who was the, the founder of Sarah. And that's how I managed to find my way into Sarah. And that's how Bite Labs was built. And that's how my health tech career, more broadly speaking, was built. So without that second degree connection, none of this would have really happened. Um, and a lot of it is serendipity and being at the right place at the right time. But what I can't understate is the value of building those relationships, more so than spending hours listening to podcasts or reading articles. I think that knowledge is important. But this, for me, I learn from stories and real world experience. I learn most from experiences that I've been through. And then I learn slightly less from other people telling me the stories and experiences they've been through. And I probably learned the least from like opening a textbook and learning a, a ton of theory. So that, that's me personally. So that's kind of my high level recommendation. Then you can meet these people, whether it's at conferences, whether it's just left you coffee, once again, through friends to friends. For me, it was slightly easier because almost everyone that was close to me from medical school has left medicine. So I built myself this echo chamber around me. And when I spent my years outside of medicine, I struggled to find anyone that was still working clinically. The vast majority, almost all of them were, were working in, in alternative careers. So these people are out there um, and it's finding yourself a like-minded community that you can bounce ideas off. And, and it goes back to one kind of a similar point that we were making before is what brings you through these tumultuous periods of uncertainty when the, you know, the ship is a little bit rocky is having those like-minded people that will support you, right? Um, and that's the same as you know, if you're moving into health tech or any other type of career. So when I, when I took my F3 year and, and I mentioned to my educational supervisor that, you know, I wanted time out to figure out what I wanted, um, he was not happy at all. He was in fact, very, very disappointed. So those people still, still exist. And similarly, if you're leaving your training program to go into health tech, yes, there are fantastic opportunities available where you may get paid more and be able to sit on a beach and work and, you know, all, all the wonderful things that, uh, people who do work in tech may take for granted, but, uh, you know, there, there are also huge challenges pivoting your, your career and, and surrounding yourself with people who have done that journey is incredibly valuable. Yeah, totally agree with you. Just this, um, feeling of belonging, isn't it? That is, I think really important. I, I feel, um, well, I, I felt that I didn't, I couldn't find that sense of belonging in the clinical environment a lot of the time, actually, for me. And so now I see that with retrospect, it's easier for me to find people who are um, on the same kind of wavelength as me now, because I've, I've, I'm, now I'm kind of curating that, the world that I'm in. So yeah, I think that's, that's really great advice. You can go out there, you can, you can really decide who it is that you have around you and, and who it is that will support you through the process that you're going on or the, the journey that you're on to, to wherever it is that you want to go. And I think that the great thing that you're doing right now with Byte Labs is you're kind of creating those networks or you're helping people to find those networks as well through the process of joining this program and, you know, going on the workshops and meeting like-minded people as well. So what, what, what I'm really interested to hear about with Byte Labs, because I know it's this kind of eight week long practical training 
in how to create digital products. I would love to know what it, what was it like for you or what did you learn through the process of creating this? Because you've had to kind of go out on a limb and make something that didn't really exist in the form that you have it right now. So what, what was it, what was it like? What did you find through that process? And I guess also, how are you, how, what is it that you're doing to help people find that sense of belonging, really? That sense of belonging and community is exactly really why Fight Labs was created. I think the, I'll be honest with you, the educational component kind of comes secondary to the network and the community. And the reason I say that is because when we founded Fight Labs as a product of Fight World was founded to myself and a friend of mine called Ridian, who was a ex-doctor who moved his career into tech and founded a company called Pando, and then he moved to Newman, and now he's doing his MBA uh, in London. And the biggest challenge him and I had was, was around community. Like it took us a few years to build a solid community around us of people who have similar mindsets um, that we can bounce ideas off and feel supported by. Um, so what we wanted to do was we wanted to create a program where we brought in a ton of our friends who had supported us and said, let's take all of you incredible people and put you out to the world and you bring your friends because the likelihood is if you and I get on and you get on with your friends, then we'll get on with your friends and other people will get on. It's, it's the network effects, cooperation, whatever you want to call it. And, and that was really what the entirety of Fight Labs was founded on. It was put together in one weekend the landing page and the curriculum was all put together very quickly. But the first thing we did was reach out to as many friends as we could and said, can we put your faces on our landing page? Because the most important thing is people need to know that there are a community of people who think like them and will support them in this wiggly and wiggly strange journey that they may be embarking on. So it was always built to be community first. And now we have you know, hundreds of advisors from a hundred plus different organizations that's why we have in-person components. We have the launch day, we have a breakfast in the middle, we have demo day at the end. So fellows who are going on this eight-week fellowship, they can come, they can meet their mentors who are supporting them. They can meet the advisors of the wider organization. They can meet the wider health tech community and build those real relationships. The most, you know, what we try and make very clear on the program, it, there's no point in building transactional relationships with anyone. I, I certainly don't think so. You know, you want to take someone, take them for a drink, meet them for a coffee, get to know them as a person, and then you can support one another. Um, you know, sporadically messaging someone for, for requests here and there is not a real relationship in my mind. And what we wanted to do was make sure that when you go through the program, you have at least one or two people, whether it's other fellows, whether it's alumni within the alumni network, that you can feel can now support you for years and years. The Bylabs is not meant to be an eight Experience. It's meant to be arguably kind of this lifelong or career long experience where not only do you make good friends with the mentors and advisors who have gone through these journeys and they work at big health tech startups like Google and you know all the others, but they also the alumni who are slightly more junior in their in their journey who also completely relate to the experiences that you're going through. Um, so it's that kind of difference in experience that is super important. So what I was alluding to right at the start is what, who supports you in this? Well, it's the mentors that you have that have gone the distance and done that journey. And then it's the people who are stuck in it right now, trying to figure it all out. And if you can have those two groups of people, 
in my mind, you're pretty much sorted in terms of what you need. In terms of so, um, as I said, everything has been community driven, both during the fellowship and beyond. We try and hold alumni events uh, every month or every couple of months. It's a little bit of a struggle, but um, yeah, we also have the remote fellowship, and then anyone who does the fully remote fellowship can also join all the alumni events and build those relationships. That's wonderful. I, I think, I think it's it's really great that you are kind of using that that way that those kind of words in terms of a community led type of program really because I think going back to something that Erica Young said who's who was previously on the on the podcast she was talking all about networks and she she's someone who's really interested in network science she's a designer and um, she works with companies to help them to create networks around their kind of startups she works in VC to help them create networks around the VC um, kind of startups and she was saying that what is really difficult a lot of the time is talking to people who come from an academic background and helping them to understand the value of a good network and I, I, I've definitely learned through the process of finding my own way and creating my own career that you do need to have a good network but I was still kind of before that very institutionalized in my thinking that okay I've got a supervisor I have an application I don't need to know the people but they need to just like like my application enough to get me through the door and you realize that that's not the way that life works so it's really great to hear you working with kind of academic types of people and helping them to to really engage with this idea of you know, networks aren't just your friends in your personal life. You can create these really meaningful relationships around your work as well. So, so it's, yeah, it's great to see, really exciting to see the, the, the way that you are creating this sense of belonging in Byte Labs. I wanted to ask you, you know, what, what would you say is the biggest barrier to people going into health tech? And I think that it is actually the networking side of things, actually. I wonder if I wonder if there are any other kind of major barriers that you see, and how do you think that Byte Labs is helping people to overcome those issues? Really? Yeah, I mean, as you said, we've touched on a couple of those. The big one being the network and not having case studies of people close to you who have gone that you know done that journey. Essentially, um, I think another thing is also kind of we've touched on, but not quite, is the mentality of, of a clinician, particularly with the NHS, versus the mentality of being in, in, in inverted commas, the real world or beyond the NHS. In the NHS, we or in medicine or healthcare generally, it's stepwise progression, very clear annual targets you need to meet, very clear in terms of where you are in your training, and you're completely indoctrinated into this concept of, of structured training. Ever since you, let's say you join an undergrad med school, ever since you were 18 years old to when you leave med school or whatever, 24, and then you know, F1, F2, ST1, 2, 3, et cetera, everything is regimented. So everyone is used to the comfort, once again, some people would describe it otherwise potentially, but let's call it the comfort of being in a regimented program that tells you where to be, when to be there, and what your future looks like. Everything is laid out for you. Some people love that. Some people love the structure and they thrive within it because it makes them feel comfortable. Whereas other people miss a little bit of chaos. And, and those, that was kind of like me um, and, and some of my co-founders as well. Like they, they missed having the uncertainty of not knowing what's coming next. 
And I'm gonna, it's not even a question of missing because they've actually never had it. They kind of want this feeling of being able to decide what is coming next for them. And that, that just doesn't exist. Yes, you can go in between and change training programs, et cetera. There are ways that you can do that, but all in all, generally, most of your career is planned out for you. So, I mean, in terms of challenges, it's going to be trying to reframe that mindset and embrace the uncertainty because, that, you know, it's very easy to take a year out of training now. You don't even need to give a, give a reason. You can just say, I'm, I want to take some time out for myself. And then people expect everything to fall onto their lap. This is what I see, right? They expect the jobs to come in because you're a doctor. They expect, you know, doors to be opened immediately. But there is usually quite a significant period of, once again, going back to that word discomfort, um, where everything isn't laid out for you. That, that really nice career trajectory that you had before doesn't, it, it may not be there for a little while as you try and figure things out. And embrace that chaos is really what I would say, because everyone's going through the same. And the only way you can learn is really through, or the best way you can learn is going to be through your own experiences. Make the mistakes, figure it out, try and mitigate risk as much as you can. Um, you know, that's kind of why I've come back to training as well, is, you know, it's nice to have some kind of career platform within a specialty that I actually enjoy um, to, to basically fall back on if I need to. But there are lots of different challenges which are, in my mind, the majority of which are, are psychological. And the network is one, and then obviously the actual experience and the, the core knowledge that you need to have to gain a role within the health tech space. So being a, being a clinician alone, I guess, in inverted commas once more, is usually enough to get into consulting, for example. It's, it's, it's a bit more challenging to get, to get roles in health tech. And because there is no dedicated career trajectory or curriculum, or like, you know, once again, the, the, the checklist of what is expected of you, uh, people don't really know where to go. And that once again, is what BioLabs was designed for is to give you a little bit of a checklist of the non-technical skills that would be expected of you for an entry level job within the health tech space. So that is what BioLabs gives you. It gives you that course core knowledge gives you the network, it gives you access to jobs. So within the last kind of three months, there's been 70-ish clinicians that we've put into health tech roles, i.e. either full-time or part-time. That, you know, that's a sizable, a sizable number, right? Um, and that's just because we bring those two worlds together, or we, we try to as much as possible. And, and we, tell, we tell the companies, look, we have vetted this incredible talent. We've put them through an intensive program. They have a new network you know, give them a shot, at least give them some role and let them figure out whether they like it or not. And sometimes people realize tech isn't for them and they go back into clinical and that's totally fine as well because they'll never, they'll never regret it because they've gained that experience themselves. And once again, it goes back to the point of if you'd have that lived and learned experience, you can go the rest of your career without having those, those regrets because you actually tried. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, yeah, I can, I, Obviously, I agree with you because this podcast is <laughs> it's, it's all about carving a path for yourself, where, wherever that may be and how that can, you know, that process, going through that process can be beneficial to you, but beneficial to other people as well. And you're definitely a great example of that as well. Um, it's interesting to hear you talk about that kind of institutionalized mindset. I always talk about just being comfortable with the cadence of the year. So even now around roughly around kind of March, April time, 
I start to get what I call the spring feeling, which is like a slight kind of anxiety. And I realized it's because I'm thinking about exams. Like this is the period when you start getting ready for exams coming up. And even now in my 30s, I still kind of get this spring feeling, which is bizarre, right? And so it's, it's, it's interesting talking about how you can help people to reframe and kind of divorce themselves from the mindset of, you know, this is when you do this, this is when you do that. And you're only ever qualified because somebody else gave you a certificate, right? And empowering people to feel that they can, you know, they can believe in what they've done themselves and their perspective and the experience that they have, whether or not somebody has validated it or not really. So it's really wonderful to hear you talk about that. And the fact that you're giving people opportunities as well, that must be such an amazing feeling to hear when people get into a new role as well. So that's, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, that, that's, that's wonderful. We, we call them our, our community wins because, you know, some of them are, and it goes back to this concept of, of community. Like we are a very small part of, of people's journeys, but um, whenever an individual benefits, the community benefits and, and we all do, right? So some of them are getting jobs in tech. Some of them are getting, you know, new roles, advisory roles. Some of them have moved into policy. It's quite varied. But um, it's all, yeah, community-centered, as we said. Final question, Azim. You have been wonderful to speak to. You've got some great experiences to share and just lots of wisdom as well. I would really love you to imagine for a moment that you are the dean of a university and you can influence the curriculum for healthcare students in any way you see fit. And this is already kind of what you're doing with Byte Labs, by the way. But I would love to know if you were working with healthcare students what would you want them to learn about tech or careers or life, anything you want? And how would you want them to learn it to help them to lead more fulfilling and impactful careers? So I think there's probably two components to it, which is the kind of actual knowledge I may implement within the curriculum and then some of the mindsets or psychological components that I'd like to introduce at a grassroots level or an earlier stage. In terms of knowledge, I think what med students or healthcare students generally need to understand is how the knowledge they're gaining is now transferable uh, beyond their direct clinical role. And there may be some pushback to this because we are trying to retain a workforce, but at the end of the day, people are going to figure this out once they graduate anyway. So for example, you know, as you say, the BiLabs curriculum is essentially built around this. And we are, you know, we run our program with medical schools now because what I would do is I'd probably condense a lot of the program into a shorter period of time. And what we're trying to explain is how you've got, med let's take an example, you've got medical students learning about, you know, renal pathology. But what I would then do, I would then say, okay, how can you translate all the knowledge that you're learning about, you know, chronic kidney disease into building a tool that can now detect deterioration of patients with chronic kidney disease and then improve their management? So what you're doing is you're tying in the basic knowledge, the core knowledge that they need to be great doctors and tying it into this real digital world that we're living in where tools like this are being built. Once again, not necessarily with the aim of them getting jobs in these companies, but the aim of them understanding the importance of digital, essentially. And you know, House of Commons released their digital transformation white paper or report a few months ago. Um, and how they're trying to facilitate digital transformation in the NHS. Unfortunately, it's a lot of buzzwords, in my opinion, and there's no actual roadmap to it. But a lot of it is going to be upskilling and getting students to understand this concept at a much earlier stage that you can build a tool which impacts tens of thousands of patients a day 
or they can work on the ward and have you know more granular impact one-to-one with patients. And because not everyone wants to have, be on the ward constantly managing patients, and that, that that's totally fine. Some people are more technologically inclined and want to use that clinical knowledge to build tools. So you need to give students case studies. You need to help them learn. You know, uh, we teach a lot about product management and lean canvas and you know, how to commercialize within the NHS. Some of those bits I wouldn't necessarily do. I'm not necessarily interested in teaching med students about how to commercialize a product in the NHS. What I am interested in doing is teaching students to understand how they're using that knowledge to work with diverse teams of different skill sets. Because we have the concept of the multidisciplinary team within the NHS. Having worked in tech, that concept also exists. So for example, I'm a, I'm a clinician sitting in a team with data scientists, with designers and UI, UX and product managers, et cetera. How are you as a subject matter expert, who's usually non-technical as a clinician, managing that multidisciplinary team? How are you using your clinical knowledge and imparting that upon the team? And med school, once again, it teaches about empathy and communication and breaking down complex problems for patients. Well, med students should also be learning how you break down complex problems for that multidisciplinary team. How do you communicate with developers and designers and use that clinical knowledge to build impactful tools? I think that would be an incredible way to empower a workforce to feel more confident, to actually be more hands-on in building tools that impact patient care. So, you know, once again, we want people who are, who are experiencing these problems the first hand to be implementing quality improvement within the NHS. And once again, it doesn't need to be like a super sexy new tool they're developing. It can literally be a quality improvement project that they're doing once they've graduated within their trust using a no-code tool. So we work with a company at the moment, which is, you know, fully compliant with all the guidelines and regulation they need to be to implement no code within any NHS trust and improve flow and efficiency and quality improvement. Clinicians are only going to build that if they have the skills to do that. that that's a very long-winded answer to that question, but a few, a few ideas there. And then, and then second, and I'd probably do that within like a hackathon-esque component to make it a little bit more engaging and exciting. And then obviously all the um, psychological things that we've discussed now about, you know, do you need to do the entire medical track in one one go? Do you need to follow the stepwise progression constantly? Is you know comparing yourself to others? Why why you shouldn't? You know a lot of what we've described basically on this call, I think, needs to actually be put out in the open for people to start thinking about and realize this isn't a taboo subject. Because a lot of clinicians think that if they're starting to think about the things that we've been talking about, there's something wrong with them. But actually, it should be the opposite, that you should embrace these thoughts and start thinking about this earlier on. Um, so I, I'd probably implement within the curriculum some element of that, how that looks like, I'm not entirely sure, but the fact that that doesn't exist yet is beyond me, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so much. There's so much in there that I find really interesting. I think starting with the idea of helping going beyond teaching people facts and figures and processes and and actually showing them how you can use the knowledge that you have to think in another way and how can you use that to actually solve a problem other than you know the typical kind of exam question that might come up um i think that i think that's wonderful i think it's great not just to tell people what to think but how to think so i i i think i actually think that that's you know, something that perhaps medical students can do for themselves already is 
you know, how now that you have this information, how can you start to how can you start to mold that into actually solving an actual issue? Can you look outside outside of the curriculum of what you've learned and look at the problems that you're facing currently? And based on just what you know already, what what can you do with that? That's I think that's fantastic. And yeah, second second of all, I think it is. Um, I've I've often I've often said this. I think that there is there's so much in our mindset and um, and just our perspective going through the the healthcare experience it's a really emotionally charged experience and as you say it's a really structured path and it's not necessarily for everyone and we need to really think of ways that we can actually address that that gap really how can we help people to feel empowered about the choices that they're making in their career so something that i'm i'm still thinking about as well Every time I come on the call, I think I'm, I'm slowly talking to different people. I'm slowly kind of building up a picture of maybe what this might look like. So it's, it's great to hear you speak on that as well. So thank you so, so much for sharing your time and your wisdom. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Brand New Doctor. I hope it inspired you in your personal journey. Check out the notes for a summary of the show with all of the important links. And if you enjoyed this, 